Welcome to the Real Clear Values podcast with Tom English. This is a podcast about values, the good, the bad, and the ugly. In this episode, I speak with Rana Mitter, who is a professor of history and politics of modern China at the University of Oxford. He's also a fellow of St. Cross College. This episode is fascinating and it was a fascinating conversation for me because it really digs into the change and the shift in China's values in the 20th century. So if you are interested at all in China's past and present, particularly in relation to its values, then this one is for you. Enjoy. Rana Mitter, thank you so much for your time on the Real Clear Values podcast. Real pleasure to be here, Tom, and looking forward very much to our conversation. So, Rana, you are something of an expert in relation to his, the history and politics of modern China. You are the director of the University of Oxford's China Centre and also a fellow of St. Cross College as well. How long have you been researching and teaching in this particular area? Well, I've been working and living with China for a very long time, Tom, I have to say. I should have, by the way, that um, I served seven very happy years as the director of Oxford's China Centre. I've now handed over to a, a brilliant colleague, but I'm still very much in post as a teacher of history and politics of China at the university. But my adventures with China started long before that. I decided really almost out of a sense of wanting to try the unknown when I was still um, in school to apply to study Chinese um, at university, which in the late 1980s was not something that that many people did. And uh, Mm. I'm not sure that my school was necessarily very uh, impressed by the idea. They thought it was a bit of a punt, but it turned out to be actually um, a bet that's paid off in all sorts of ways. Uh, One of the things that fascinated me early on was everything from from a Western point of view, very unfamiliar writing system, to the sense that this was civilization, a society that was just going to be very different from anything I might know in the uh, in the West. So I first started studying Chinese, Chinese language over 30 years ago, and I was lucky enough to get my first um, academic position in the late 1990s. So I guess you could say as a sort of professional China person, I've clocked up over a quarter of a century, which reminds me just how old I'm sure I'm getting. Wow. Yeah. So that, that's quite that's quite a decent amount of time to to focus on on one particular country, albeit a very big country and, and quite a complex country as well in terms of in terms of the way that it operates in in the difference that it has with the West as well from from what we're familiar with in the West and also in, in any other country. Really, it's quite unique, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, China is one country, but of course, it's much more than a country. In fact, you could say that it's been a civilization, it's been a culture, uh, it's been a whole mindset in various ways. And even one of the provinces of China will have a population in some cases that's several times the population of any European country. So, you know, the UK, where the two of us are speaking at the moment, um, is about, I think, 65 million people in terms of population. Uh, That's smaller in terms of population than a province like Sichuan or uh, a province um, uh, such as Henan, all of which are very, very um, large entities in their own right, and yet just part of that wider entity that is China as as a whole. So yes, one country, but one with both length and breadth to it, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, absolutely. Quite quite considerably so. In terms of your career then, Rana, you've been you've been in this particular field for, like you say, about a quarter of a century, which is, is quite a considerable amount of time. And certainly a lot has happened in relation to China and China's relationship with the world in that period of time. So what, what are some of the, the major changes that have stood out to you in your career so far in relation to China and, 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 and also, I'd say, China's relationship with the rest of the world? 
I think China's relationship with the rest of the world has changed profoundly in the last 25 or 30 years. It's been, as a historian, an exciting time to see because you can see that we are, whatever else people will say about this period in the future, that it is one that we are living through in a period of really historical change. But of course, it can be both exciting and alarming to live through because those changes affect all of us you know, living off in a very long way away from China in a way that simply wouldn't have been imaginable just a generation or two uh, ago. In terms of what's changed, I think I would essentially suggest that there is a paradox um, in the last 30 or 40 years, which is that in some senses, China is much more open to the wider world than it has been before. And yet at the same time, many aspects of China are more closed to the rest of the world than they have been. And this gets to, I know, one of the core themes that you want to discuss in our conversation today, Tom, which is, is values. So let me explain what I mean by that, that paradox about China and its change over the last 30 years. I think it's fair to say that in terms of engagement with the world, today's China is engaged in a way that hasn't been the case for you know at least 200 years and 200 years ago we were in a very different sort of um, of world anyway we're talking about a world where you know the second biggest economy in the world is china where in terms of technological innovation and supply chains you know everyone has been looking at the pandemic world and realizing how much everyone's dependent on china for for so many uh, so many things it's also a world where china has a role at the top table in international governance in places like the united nations in a way that simply wasn't the case really during much of, of, of the Cold War a couple of generations ago. Mm. And that has all been very important in service of making sure that China and the world engage with each other in depth. But particularly in the last few years, there have also been some signs that China is closing itself to the outside world in some important ways. In particular, the sense that actually the Chinese Communist Party has put forward a view of the world, which in some ways is driven by a classic Marxist model. Now, in some senses, this should not be a surprise at all because the clue is in the name. It's called the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, yeah. And communist parties around the world, of course, are driven by an idea of Marxist thinking. But if you look at the language that comes from Marxism, which you hear, you know, day to day, there's nothing secret about it. You can see it in all the Chinese documentation. The idea that in some ways there are sort of two forces grappling with each other in the, in the world, you know, the Western world and the, and the Chinese world, is heard more frequently today than would have been the case in the China of 20 or 30 years ago. And while that doesn't necessarily have to be a military confrontation, we all very much hope it is not that, there is a sort of sense that perhaps this is oppositional at a time when actually there ought to be much more interaction and cooperation. And a final note on this, you did say that the question is how China interacts with the world. That was the right question to ask because the West is not the rest of the world. Mm. I would say that again, summarizing briefly, what we've noticed in the last 10 to 15 years is that China's relationship with much of the Western world, let's be frank, has got more confrontational. It's become, yeah. it's become much more difficult. But its relationship with much of the rest of the world, parts of Southeast Asia, parts of Latin America, large parts of sub-Saharan Africa, in some ways has become more cooperative. It's not that those places don't see the many flaws that of course exist in China, flaws in the West as well, of course, mm. but they do see China as a new source of a different sort of engagement with power, with authority, and yeah, with values as well. And so when we talk about China and the world, we mustn't, sitting in the UK or sitting in the US, make the mistake of thinking that it's only the conversation with the Western world that actually matters, because mm. for many other people, actually, it's much more about that global impact that China has, and China knows that. Yes, absolutely. It's a very good point, actually. Things like the 
China's Belt and Road Initiative and, and things like like that, th those schemes and those initiatives that, that some people have suggested a, a kind of like a, a, a take from the, the Americans' playbook with the Marshall Plan and, and things of, of that ilk and, and building alliances in, in places like Africa as well. Because, of course, if you, if you look at Africa as a continent, that, that has a, an awful lot of resources. And that's something that, that the Chinese have, have looked to do outside of, of Western purview as well. So, yeah, it's a very good point. It's important to remember that, that China has its own relationships with these other countries well outside of, of the West. And, and so, so everything's, everything's to play for. And of course, with China, it, it's always been a matter of resources, hasn't it? And, and ensuring that it has sufficient resources, not just economic resources, but also more raw materials for its population. Is, is that fair to say? I mean, thinking back to Mao, for example, didn't Mao say something like he was, he was at war with nature? Or, or I'm, I'm butchering that. To, to, to quite a degree but but he was saying something like he needed to make sure that nature works for china and that they use technical means to to ensure they have sufficient resources well, i think modernizing states across the world during the cold war years which mao was of course part of all very strongly shared the idea that actually human beings should be in charge of nature rather than the other way around so yes we can absolutely point to the way in which mao's china you know used huge amounts of uh you know technological capacity to try and name tame nature often not succeeding we have to remember it's also the era of you know classic texts like rachel carson's silent spring which was about the way in which ddt had basically destroyed large parts of the, the wildlife of, of, of north america so i think in terms of environmental consciousness much of the world has changed the way in which it thinks about this and even in china itself it's a highly authoritarian state but there are aspects of the environmental agenda that are much better understood there today than would have been the case under under mao in terms of resources though i think it's worth noting that there is always a battle, uh, or at least um, a kind of jostling for position in all countries, and China's certainly one of them, but it's not the only one, between economic needs, security needs, and, you know, again, coming back to your theme today, values, the idea that actually what you do in the world shapes who you are. And one of the most sort of how can I put it, iconic elements of the way in which Western countries and China are seeking influence in uh, much of sub-Saharan Africa, I think po points up both the advantages to them and the flaws in what they're doing. The, the advantages come from the fact that, as you say, you know, there's a capacity of dominating or at least taking a stake in certain key resource um, elements. You know, there's Democratic Republic of Congo. It's a place which has huge numbers of rare earths. It's a war-torn area, very difficult for anyone to engage, but Western countries in China both very much have a role there. Also, it's the case that large parts of East Africa are becoming the scene of much more of a military buildup than would have been the case a generation ago. Uh, China has a new naval base in Djibouti, uh, the Horn of Africa, but so do a whole variety of other countries from the Western world. And that's a sign that perhaps there is something going on there that um, has the capacity, if we don't watch out, to become confrontational. Mm. However, I think a lot of this also misses one of the main points, and I have to say the Chinese as much as the West can be guilty of um, making this omission, which is to think that the wider state of Africa is a set of countries that have no agency of their own, no capacity to shape what's going on. And what has to be remembered that in a whole variety of places, many of the states of West Africa, areas which China and the West are very interested in, like fintech, are actually being developed indigenously and autonomously in all sorts of interesting ways. Countries also 
want to have a choice of people to deal with. So a country like Ethiopia, which is currently going through a horrific civil war. But prior to that, there was a sign that, you know, on some infrastructure issues, they were quite keen to take the, um, the Chinese um, project. Uh, it could be high-speed rail would be an example of that. In others, for instance, telecoms, they went with an American-backed um, conglomerate. So in those particular cases, I think those who see this as a sort of zero-sum between either the West or China will win in Africa are following a sort of Cold War, or even colonial playbook that isn't really, I think, a statement of what's going on in more large parts of Africa, which is much more about Africa itself. It's a fast growing continent. Each of its 50 states is very individual in various ways. You have democracies, you have authoritarian states, you have some that are in between. But most and not all of them are quite capable of bargaining and log rolling and finding ways to get a selection of actors to help them to do what they want. And having the West and China and Japan and the World Bank and a whole variety of different actors that they can turn to and negotiate with is from their point of view often actually a very useful range to have. They wouldn't want to be dependent only on China, but they also don't want to be solely dependent on uh, the Western countries that may have an influence in the region as well. Very interesting, an, an awful lot going on then. So let, let's dial the, the clock back a little bit, Rana, and speaking to your, your particular focus as, as a historian, and let's look at the, at the 20th century, because we think about, of course, we think about China now as being a communist state. We talk about the Chinese Communist Party, but, but it didn't start out the 20th century like that, did it? What, what was in, in place in China then? So one of the most astonishing historical trajectories, you may think it's good, you may think it's bad, you may you know, take different views on it, but nobody can deny how transformatively huge it has been is the difference between the China of today and the China of just 100 years ago. Today, and we've been saying this, but it's worth noting, you know, China is the second biggest economy in the world. It's a major technological innovator. It's a highly authoritarian state with tremendous amounts of control over the population at home. It has very strictly policed borders, not least in the era of COVID, as we're all uh, all aware. You know, that's the it's uh, that's the China of today. That was not the China of a hundred years ago. Mm. China was not a colony in the 1910s, 1920s, but it was the next thing to that, you might say, a country which was very, very much under the influence of a variety of foreign actors when it came from everything to setting external tariffs on the import and export of goods, um, to the um, legal immunity given to many foreigners, Westerners in particular, uh, as well as the Japanese actually, on Chinese soil through a series of what were called extraterritorial laws. Um, even part of the tariff autonomy was run by a, an agency which is technically part of the Chinese government, it's called the Maritime Customs, actually mostly run by Brits. It was in fact founded uh, in the late 19th century by a man from Portadown in Northern Ireland called uh, Robert Hart. It became Sir Robert Hart, in, in, in fact. So in other words, the sort of foreign presence in China was a very, very all-encompassing thing. And that linked with one of the other issues that anyone who you know, was reasonably educated and could look at the state of China 100 years ago could see, which was that it was deeply disunited. Um, mm. So-called warlords, in other words, militarist leaders with their own almost private armies, really, mm. different parts of China, maybe a province, province or two, and would often fight with each other, frequently fight with each other, actually, to try and get control of the central government and treasury in Beijing. But that central government was almost a sort of dead letter because quite often it didn't actually have control beyond a very limited part of the uh, of the country. So a lot of young Chinese patriots, nationalists of that time, particularly the student population, would use 
a phrase to express in kind of one sentence what they thought the major problem that China had at that time was. And they said, from outside, imperialism, from inside, warlordism. And when asked what they thought the solution was going to, uh, going to be, uh, some of them, particularly just over 100 years ago, during a major demonstration held on the 4th of May 1919 in the center of, of Beijing, uh, came up with the slogan, we need Mr. Science and Mr. Democracy. In other words, science, technological innovation, the ability for China to be able to um, uh, kind of modernize itself into strength, and democracy, the sense that some kind of more popular uh, system of government that wasn't either an emperor or basically military warlords fighting each other could actually uh, take, uh, take power in China. And you then have a very long journey of a century between then and now in which war and revolution, you get a communist revolution in 1949 and the rise to power of the Chinese Communist Party of, of today, which is still very much, of course, in, in power. Mm. Mm, very interesting. Like you say, th this is one of the things that, that we don't often appreciate is, is that disunity that characterised China, because it is, like we said at the top of the call, it is such a vast land space with so many people. It's very difficult for us, especially being based in, in a place like the UK, to really think about the, the sheer vastness of, of a place like China. It, it's really quite incredible. I've, I've, only been, I've only been to China once myself. I went to Shanghai in 2008. It was part of my my master's degree, we did a field trip there. And I just remember just seeing the throngs of people in the street. And it was just like a regular day. It wasn't a, a special occasion. It was just literally, this is the street on a yeah. regular day in Shanghai. <laughs> um, so yeah. it, 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 it is radically it is radically different to, to, to where certainly I'm used to in terms of you know be, being a Westerner, but it's radically different to how it was. So thinking about that problem that China had Rana, in terms of that disunity, that <clears throat> fragmentation, how was it in 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 short, in on, on a postage stamp, so to speak, rel relatively speaking, how is it that, that communism won that in becoming the unifying force to to mm. to, to er eradicate the problem? But it's most basic, and it's very very basic because. To be frank, scholars have spent the last you know, seven or eight decades and probably spent several decades more debating why did communism win out in China? Um, but put at its most basic, there are a variety of political solutions that were debated and experimented with in China through much of the early 20th century, none of which necessarily dominated. Mm. But a couple of but one event in the mid 20th century, I think, really changed the direction of China. That was the Second World War. Mm. Um, you know, everyone from the Western world listening to this podcast will know all about the Second World War. I have to say many people from the West don't know much about China's role. Just mm. to say briefly that it was a very devastating conflict. Japan invaded China in the mid 1930s, and you end up with more than 10 million dead, 100 million Chinese becoming refugees in their own country. Um, in other words, a really kind of transformatively devastating event. That devastation, that World War II visited on the territory of China created a sort of landscape on which a much more radical system of uh, political change became plausible and thinkable mm. in a way that it might not, might not have done. You can never say 
counterfactually what would have happened. What, what sure. But if the Japanese hadn't invaded, you can see other scenarios in which the then non-communist government perhaps gets to stabilise the country. You know, there's a communist insurgency, but it doesn't end up being dominant, these sorts of, of things. But in fact, the war with Japan, you know, creates this huge overturning of this, this massive society through refugee flight, black marketeering, famine, starvation, yeah. um, inflation, you know, huge variety of social problems. And then finally, when you get to a civil war between two factions, the existing uh, incumbent nationalist government of Chiang Kai-shek and the communists then led by Chairman Mao, Mao Zedong, the eventual communist victory is in part through to superior tactics. You know, you could have put to specific things like the Soviet Union helping with um, armaments and so forth. But actually this sort of bigger sense of historical change that comes from the exhaustion and disillusionment with the existing nationalist government that made people think that actually something, not just a bit of a kind of incremental change, but a revolution that was going to turn everything over was at least attractive to many. And you can also tell, and I've been spending quite a lot of my recent time reading revolutionary diaries of the 1940s from young and some not so young communist activists who were involved in the revolution. It's clear that they feel themselves, in thinking about their own values actually, mm. to be very much part of a revolutionary process. In other words, they were very self-conscious. They knew they were communists. They knew they were doing something new and they yeah. rejoiced in that. It was very, very much a conscious process. And I think that sense of confidence in their own mission, which their opponents did not have, is probably part of the answer to your question. Wow, that's fascinating. It really fascinates me how you answered that, Rana, in relation to there being this, this devastation from World War II. Because th there's actually, and I've heard you speak about this before elsewhere, but, but there is actually contention, isn't there, about when World War II starts? Because world, when, the, the start date for World War II is different for the Chinese to how it is for the West. Isn't, isn't that right? It is. There's actually even dispute within China itself, but leave that aside for, for 30 seconds. Um, I would say, and most scholars of you know, China's wartime experience would, would say, I think, in, in the West, that the war really begins in earnest in 1937. So that's two years and a bit before the outbreak of war in, in Europe. And in a sense, I'd always throw at people, if you don't believe that World War II begins, it begins in 1937, why not? Because... 37, July 37 is when China and Japan go to war with each other. And as we know, you then have at that point an essentially separate war going on in Europe, Nazi Germany versus uh, Britain and France. And it's only really in 1941 that these wars all come together in a kind of global war with you know, Barbarossa, Pearl Harbor and all of, all of this. So if you believe that the beginning of the European war in 1939 is the starting point, then actually I still think there's a very good logic that it should be 1937 and the beginning of the war in Asia. I gave you one slight provides the meaning because actually the Chinese government a few years ago made an official declaration that World War II in Asia begins in 1931, which is the Japanese invasion of Manchuria in that year. For a variety of reasons I won't bore you with, I think most Western historians are a bit skeptical about that claim, even though it's now official doctrine in China. But 1937 is very well regarded and shared as a start date for the Asian conflict, which indeed I think marks the beginning of the path that eventually becomes the global war that we know as World War II. Mm. Fascinating. And I think it's fascinating from, a to, again, going back to values, the main theme here, and, and leadership and, and thinking about people wanting something different and that the, they, they're wanting to be part of this change. And I think that's really dangerous when, when people are in that position, as they were, ironically, in, in Nazi Germany, right? Because people wanted this, this change and, and Hitler never won a majority, but there were sufficient people, whether they were talking about 
Nazism, whether they were talking about socialism, whatever it was, people wanted this change and they wanted something radical. And it's almost like they wanted a strong leader or strong leadership to come away and take away their pain. You know, come, come along and take away our problems, take away our pain, just make it stop, just make the problem stop. And so I think that's, that's quite telling. And I, I, I do see that throughout history. I think there are, there are several examples of, of where that happens. And, and that, that really does, it concerns me because it's empowering to demagogues. It's very, very empowering to demagogues. And we've seen this, we've seen this in more recent examples, shall we say, in, in various parts of the world, where people say things that really do appeal to the passions and the prejudices of the mass. To then to then garner support and it's very very dangerous if people aren't kind of clued into what the values are what the end goal is what people are trying to do here because it's so easy for people if they're acting on emotion and the pain that they feel and wanting it to just go away and saying here you take the problem you've given me a promise that you're going to solve it now deal with it i, th I think that's really dangerous what are your thoughts on that well has the potential for danger, but I think one of the things that we also have to remember, and actually leaders of revolutions often forget this, is that successful social movements are not simply or even primarily about what happens top down. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, in the case of China, the voice from Beijing may say something, but actually what people think they're doing at the grassroots is often very different. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that if you look at something like the communist revolution of the mid 20th century, that is notable is that People are joining in, they're taking part for all sorts of reasons that may not necessarily accord with the overall big narrative that they're being told by the leaders on top. So, you know, if you are a dedicated revolutionary who spent the last 25 years on the run as part of this very, very tight knit party as the top leaders, almost all of the men, of course, uh, who led the Chinese communist movement through the long march of the 1930s and its retreat that they had to then sort of recover, recover from, you're going to have a very tight, very top down sort of view of what the revolution is going to be and how it's going to work. Yeah. But, you know, young women joining in the villages in the 1940s because they're tired of you know being oppressed at, at home they are not interested as far as we can tell in swapping one form of patriarchal oppression for another just because the latter happens to have a kind of red star on the uh, on the label they've got their own messages their own ideas one yeah. of the most interesting memoirs i read of a uh, this is a retrospective memoir rather than a contemporary diary i've read both but they have different different purposes and the benefit of reading this memoir which was not written at the time but probably three or four decades after the revolution was of a, a widow of a very senior official of uh, Mao's China and it's fascinating seeing her memoir because it's very different from the kind of memoir that people like her husband would have written. her husband you know the, me the men's memoirs tend to be quite sort of gung-ho they tend to be quite sort of what you could sort of sticking to the official story and saying, you know, we've undertook this great revolutionary movement, we all won. Mm. But a lot of the women's memoirs I've read, read, including these ones, actually are much more ambivalent about what they think is going on. The feeling that still, you know, this sort of patriarchal oppression uh, doesn't really shift. It changes form. And there's more sort of talk, at least in terms of language, about women being given more of a role in the revolution. But you know, the complaints are that this isn't what actually happens in, in, in practice, and an awful lot of the priorities for women are being decided by, by men. And that was a reminder, I think, that just because revolutions say they're going to do one particular set of things doesn't mean that's how they're experienced by people down on the ground. And the gap between those two, um, you know, the, the sets of revolutionary goals and the sets of revolutionary achievements 
are often, I think, where things come unstuck because um, the flip side to people saying, you know, we're in a terrible situation, you need to solve this for us, is people also say, well, we gave you the mandate yeah. to solve this. Where's the results? Sure, sure, sure. And I suppose... Well, I suppose on on that point that that it's easier in in a, in a democratic setup to to hold people to account for that than than it is in when you're dealing with an autocratic setup, whether it's something like communism or or anything else of of, of that ilk. So 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 there is that to to consider as well. So 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 with all the all the revolutionary zeal that was behind it, communism won out in the revolutionary war. What did what did China lose as a result of that? Thinking about how China was and thinking about the rich cultural heritage that China has way before communism, way before the 20th century. I mean, I, I, I asked this question in relation to things like traditional Chinese medicine. My, my wife is actually an acupuncturist and she practices traditional Chinese medicine. So, so I have got the, the, the proverbial breadcrumbs from her table in terms of, of, of knowledge. I've not studied it myself, but but what what does China lose because of, of communism? So it's a really interesting and important question that in a sense shapes much of the intellectual trajectory of the 20th century in, in China. And again, because it's a long story, I'll try and make it as short as, as sure. possible. But I think it, it does involve understanding something that's quite key. Because what I'm about to say, I think, is true for China in a way that's not true for Japan or India or a variety of other Asian countries that are seeking independence and freedom and political change in the 20th century. So this is what I'm about to say is something I think is distinctive to China. China is distinctive because a large part of its intellectual class, its writers, its artists, its politicians, in the early 20th century, made a very conscious decision to reject large parts of the traditional past as being feudal, backward and outdated. They basically, you know, wiped a lot of that off the slate and said, this is something that we no longer are willing to tolerate. To give a specific example of what I'm talking about, the person who is probably even now uh, regarded as the greatest modern writer, modernist writer, you might say, of, of 20th century China, a man named Liu Xun, um, his most famous short stories, uh, including a particular one called Diary of a Madman. It's available in English translation. People can look it up if they're interested. It's, it's a, you know, a classic piece of modern, it's a sort of Chinese modern classic, you might, you might say. It's about a sort of traditional Confucian style, you know, following the, the philosophy of Confucius, Confucian style um, official who kind of, or attempted official who goes crazy, you know, loses his mind. And in his madness, he can actually see more clearly than the supposedly sane people around him. So that's an idea you find in lots of other cultures. But what he sees, looking at these sort of traditional Chinese works of philosophy and classics, when he reads them in his, his, his uh, um, uh, out-of-mind state, is that the, they actually say cannibalism, eating people, devouring people. In other words, the metaphor is that when you can really see behind the, the lines of what Confucian philosophy is about, it's not about peace and harmony and all the things that traditional Chinese philosophy is supposed to be about. It's basically a cannibalistic system that eats itself and eats its children. Mm. And of course, it's a very, very savage metaphor. And Lucian, in a sense, typified a lot of the intellectuals who were so disgusted by what they saw as the weakness of traditional China by the late 19th century, you know, Western 
gunships coming and sort of blasting open the doors, uh, selling of opium, which the government was powerful, but powerless to push back against. The overthrow of the last emperor in 1912, which still, you know, in 1912, which still meant that, you know, China didn't manage to get its act together. All this meant that look, this old culture just has to be removed. Now, as I said, that's different from India and Japan at this time. India, perhaps the most iconic figure of the, of the period is Gandhi, yeah. who goes back to tradition in many ways. He's a nationalist, a very modern nationalist. He uses broadcast, he uses modern technology, but he spins his own home-woven cloth. Uh, he also, of course, goes for non-violence, which is not really part of the, the Chinese nationalist movement at that, at that stage. Or the Japanese, who become very, very modern very quickly under the so-called Meiji Restoration of the late 19th century. Mm. But while they're renewing their technology, while they're creating their own empire, they're also rediscovering their traditional past, you know, Buddhist philosophy and so forth, and adapting it rather than abandoning it. So in China, communism in part finds a way forward because China's elites, even long before the communists had come to power, were so disgusted in some cases with their own traditional culture, that they said we have to find something else completely different. And Marxism, communism, the Russian revolution, and existing sort of strands of anarchist thought found more of a sort of open space in which to make their presence known than might have been the case if the intellectual slate had been fuller. Mm, wow, that, that's really interesting. It's really interesting how they kind of decided to, in some in some respects, throw it all away. Because if you think about philosophy in relation to China, you know, you've got you've got Confucianism, Taoism, and Buddhism, if I'm not mistaken. And mm -hmm. so, uh, yep, yep, yep. No, that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, again. China's view about religion or, you know, kind of different types of belief has always been very syncretic. In other words, people don't choose to be Taoists or Buddhists in many cases. They mm. use aspects of both. But the same is true, actually, even with many Chinese Christians who maintain some of the forms of Buddhism and, and other aspects of other religious systems, even while taking on Christianity. So mm. the distinction that you have often with monotheistic religions doesn't operate in quite the same sort of way in the Chinese context. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's, that's a good point to note. So, so communism is in situ in China. And then there comes a point where China decides to open itself up for business. There's that, that famous quote, I think it was Deng Xiaoping who said, it doesn't matter if the cat is black or white, as long as it catches mice, something to that effect. So what's that all about? What, what happens there? And why does China decide to open itself up to the world commercially? Sure. So that is something that emerges really in the 1970s and 1980s. Um, and this famous quote from Deng Xiaoping, it's always been a bit hard to actually track it down to him, but it's always sure, attributed yeah. to him. And one of the versions actually is that it's a black cat or a yellow cat, in fact, rather right. than or, or white. But, you know, nonetheless, um, essentially, China's classic, how do I put it, the, the sort of first phase of China's revolution comes to a horrific culmination with the Cultural Revolution of the 1960s, a time when China essentially is turned upside down by its own leader, Mao Zedong, Chairman Mao, who is driven by a whole variety of thoughts in the 60s, you know, that his revolution is running out of steam, that he himself is getting old and decrepit and wants to show one more blast of youthful power, and also desires to try and kind of knock off his enemies within the party. So he encourages China's youth and army and others to sort of rise up against the party itself. It's a kind of internal coup led by him. And by the end of that movement, you know, millions are dead, many more tens of millions have been traumatized through, you know, violence and confrontation that marks the Cultural Revolution. And people will have read, you know, all sorts of um, memoirs and uh, histories of, of that period. It's one of the better known periods of modern Chinese, Chinese history. However, 
even within Mao's own kind of elite leadership, they knew that once he died, this cultural revolution couldn't possibly continue. It was far too destructive and China was kind of on the path to, to self-destruction. So in the aftermath of his death, one of the leaders who he had not perhaps favored, Deng Xiaoping, who was a more pragmatic sort of leader, rose to power quite quickly with a set of ideas that were about what he called modernization. In fact, he'd taken the idea from the former prime minister of China, Zhou Enlai, of what he called the four modernizations, which included defense, agriculture, technology, and so forth. And the idea was that essentially China, and we're going back to you know, this question of values, which runs through, through this conversation, I know, changing it from a slogan that Mao had used, which was politics in command, in other words, or another phrase that was used, not perhaps by Mao, actually was used by Mao, I think, but also by others around him. It was better to be read than expert. In other words, as long as you were politically committed, yeah. what you knew didn't matter all that much. Now, Deng Xiaoping really turned that round. And the phrase that he used, he didn't invent it, it's actually a very old Chinese phrase, but he re-revived it, is the phrase, seek truth from facts. Now, that sounds very uncontroversial. Who doesn't seek truth from facts? But in the context of saying, actually, this means that the Cultural Revolution, the era of being read is more important than being expert, we're letting that go. We're basically going to let scientists do their science. We're going to let historians do their history. A bit more controversial, but you know that did happen. We're going to let people look at the outside world, but maybe stuff works that isn't invented by the Chinese Communist Party. Maybe these Americans with their you know, booming uh, economy uh, in the US in the 1980s under President Reagan at that point, you know, maybe they have a point. Maybe we need to learn something from them. And that shift came at that time. Something else also happened at that time, understated, but soon very visible which was a reversal of what I mentioned um, in the earlier part of our conversation about the rejection of Confucius, rejection of traditional philosophy. He's back by that stage. There's this bigger realization that in the era when these brassy certainties of the Cultural Revolution are being you know, rejected as destructive, violent, and, and, and inward looking, instead going back to that kind of harmonious tradition of China's philosophical past becomes very, very attractive. And you go, rather bizarrely, from the situation in the 1970s, where Confucius is regarded as the last feudal relic of the old society who must be wiped out, to the, 20, the early 2010s, where a set of institutions called Confucius Institutes are actually paid for by the Chinese government. They're basically language training institutes that are in universities in various countries in the world. But when they were looking for a, um, a brand name, you know, in the Cultural Revolution, they would have called them Chairman Mao's Revolutionary Language Training School. You know, not that I think yeah. many universities are very keen to have that. But Confucius, you know, peaceful, harmonious. Yeah. That's uh, a brand name that today's China seems very keen to get behind, even though the last person who would have ever joined the Chinese Communist Party would surely have been Confucius. Mm, mm. So maybe that brand name's a little bit of a Trojan horse, perhaps, or is it? Is it just a more palatable way of appealing to to Western appetite? No, I think it's well. I think it's use in the Western. I'm sorry, it's use in Confucius Institutes is about trying to find a sort of brand friendly name for the West. But I think the the philosophy behind it is more interesting and more complex than all of that, mm. because I think that. Today's Chinese Communist Party is a communist party, but it is not just that in terms of where its intellectual background comes from. It's trying to put together a series of strands of thought, which may or may not be compatible with each other. And I think this is a work in progress. They haven't got there yet. One of those is Marxist. And that's in some ways about you know, the classic idea you get from Hegel and others. You, know, you have a thesis, you have an antithesis. They come together, they struggle, they have a synthesis. And you can see that in lots of the language. You know, Maodun, contradiction. Doujun, struggle, which you see in lots of the language that China's political theorists use today about 
their relationship with the United States, or indeed the relationship between the economy and the environment. You know, these are put in Marxist terms. And if that was all, all there was to it, then you say, well, Communist Party Marxism, okay, no, no big deal. But it's also the case that traditional thinking, Confucian philosophy and other Chinese traditional strands of thought are much, much more prominent than before in terms of the way in which China thinks about itself. And these ideas of trying to, you know, it was actually not Xi Jinping, the current uh, leader, but the previous one, Hu Jintao, who put forward the idea of harmonious society as a way of defining the kind of China he wanted to build. Now, again, in some ways this sounds very bland, harmonious society, well, you know, who, who doesn't want that? Well, Mao, for one, as it happened, mm. but, you know, that's a, that's a different discussion. Um, but in his case, of course, using this particular phrase in Chinese makes everyone who has you know, a bit of knowledge of the philosophical background say, oh, that sounds quite Confucian. And how you put this Marxist and this Confucian set of thoughts together, since they come from very different intellectual backgrounds and have very different views of how the world works. You know, Marxism in the end is about struggle through the process of thesis and antithesis to you know, a, a final synthesis. And Confucianism is about trying to create stability and harmony, which is not really what that that uh, Marxist right. struggle is uh, about, except at the very kind of end point. Uh, this is a, a really tough set of um, philosophical differences that, as I say, we don't have the inside story at the moment. One day, perhaps as historians, we will. But it's clear from the documents that are being put out from the party that this struggle is still going on today in terms of the party defining itself for the 21st century. Mm. Do you think do you think that the, the West made a mistake then when China did start to open itself up and that there seemed to be this notion? My understanding is, and I, and I might be I might be wrong here or or incomplete in my understanding of this, but do you think that the West was mistaken then in the broad notion that once China opened itself up for business, that it might be more amenable to opening itself up to become a democracy as well? I think it was misleading. Um but it wasn't based entirely on, on a fantasy. I think part of the problem comes in understanding what democratization might have meant in the Chinese context. Because I think for an awful lot of people in the United States, the idea was that somehow it would adapt itself into being a sort of version of, of, of India or America or, or somewhere like that, you know, with mm. sort of multi-party uh, democratic system. I don't think that the Chinese Communist Party ever had that kind of transformation in mind. Even the most liberal-minded people, people whose names can't be mentioned now, I'm going to mention, like uh, Zhao Ziyang, who was the general secretary of the party, was purged just after Tiananmen Square in, in 1989. But even people like that, I think, were not really looking, at least not while they're in power, for multi-party democracy. There are rumours from his imprisonment. You know, he was held in comfortable but real house arrest for more than a decade until he died. And notes that were smuggled out suggest that later on he became quite converted to the idea of multi-party constitutionalism. But I think while he was in power, that wasn't really his aim. But there's a difference between that and what I think that they were going for, which was a much more liberal form of authoritarianism, which sounds kind of contradictory, mm. but to explain the specifics of what that might have meant or did mean at the time, it meant that you know intellectuals could debate whether democracy was a good idea. The party was going to say, we're not going to do this, but they weren't banned from doing it. There's some quite prominent academics, some of whom are working now, who wrote books with you know debates about whether or not democratic change, more participation in uh, you know the party's decision-making structures, uh, the capacity to have a freer press, for instance, which is a different issue from the issue of voting. Uh, there was actually a lot of very good investigative journalism taking place, including into corrupt officials in China is, as recently as the 2000s. Mm. Much of that is now being shut down under a much more chilly 
atmosphere when it comes mm. to um, a political reform in China today. So I think, in a sense, that the point that you made, Tom, is a very good one. I think you, it gets to a sort of sense of misperception on the part of many people who were looking at China at the time. But I think that in large part came because at least some of them assumed wrongly that there was a sort of cookie cutter model of what a democracy looked like that China would fall into, rather than asking, as I think we should still should do today, what are the realistic limits? And they can be quite wide limits, I think, mm. about what a more liberal China of the sort that exists now might look like. Because you don't have multi-party voting, doesn't mean that you therefore automatically have to lock up political prisoners, shut down the free press, prevent judges from being able to make uh, you know, independent judgments and so forth. Actually voting, well, I, I personally think it's very important, doesn't necessarily prevent those things. We've seen plenty, to take it the other way around, we've seen plenty of countries that are technically democracies. Turkey would be a good example of mm. that, which have very, very repressive uh, domestic um, uh, civil societies. I mean, there are, I think, more journalists in jail in Turkey per capita than any other country in the world, possibly even including um, uh, China. So getting hung up just on the processes of political change, important though they are, yeah. I think misses some of the wider issues of how do you create a more liberal society? And there's at least one very interesting Chinese philosopher, Bai Dongtong of Funan University, who actually argues quite strongly in a book called Against Political Equality, it's quite a provocative title, yeah. that to maintain a more liberal society, in China in particular is thinking of, actually maybe democratic voting is not the best idea because it might undermine rather than enhance that. Now you could disagree quite strongly with the idea, yeah. but the ability to separate a liberal atmosphere from the question of procedural voting is yeah. actually a debate that has been going on in China for, for some time. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. And, and like you say, it's more than what happens at the ballot box, whether each individual, each person is given a ballot to vote for, their candidate or their chosen party. I think about this as well, Rana, in relation to things like religion and the the Chinese Communist Party. I, I couldn't find the article that I, that I read on this. It was a few a good few years ago. Now it was in the Economist about the oppression of of Christians in China and the party having a problem with people converting to Christianity as though there was a concern that that might, might take precedence in people's minds above the state. And there was some talk about there being a compromise between the, well, whichever Christian denominations are there and the Chinese state to ensure that the state is, is above all and, and having some sort of um, notional omnipotent position. What, what can you say on that in terms of the, the, the dynamics there? Sure. So I would say that over, as with many other aspects of civil society in China, things have got much tighter and much harsher in the last, so let's say, 10 years or so. 10 to 15 years ago, and this might sound a bit bizarre, but in some parts of China, the Chinese Communist Party, at least at the local level, in a sort of quite passive way, almost approved of the Christian presence there. Why? So take a city like Wenzhou in East Central China. Wenzhou is one of the most prosperous parts of cities in, in China. It's a big hub for technology and other areas too. And some people observed, including Chinese sociologists, there's also a very high proportion of Protestant Christianity in that area. And in a sense, a lot of people thought that the Chinese communists might be amongst the last people who believe, still believe Max Weber's classic critique of the early 20th century, arguing that there was a Protestant ethic that helped encourage capitalism. Mm. And if you're a communist state that basically wants people to work hard and um, you know, kind of uh, be entrepreneurial, then encouraging this form of Christianity was something that they were sort of, they weren't actively gonna do it, but they were gonna stop them 
either. Mm. So it was a very interesting sort of symbiosis for a while. You know, both sides a little bit uneasy, yeah. but not kind of calling the other out. And then that began to change quite strongly from, I'd say, probably the early 2010s, mid 2010s, when actually the Communist Party decided that it was more concerned than anything else with political control. And that any entity, whether it's foreign governments or, you know, as they would see it, a foreign religion, um, which demanded um, allegiance to something outside the ambit of the Chinese Communist Party, simply was too dangerous from their point of view to permit. And so this sort of uneasy tolerance of certain types of Christianity in certain types of places switched to being essentially a clampdown. And that's you know, much more of what we've seen in the last few years, for sure. Mm. It's, it's curious because I think about Carl Jung's writing. Obviously, he, he's, he's looking at it from, from the Western point of view and he's looking at things yeah. having lived through two world wars and seeing the horrors of of nazism fascism and communism as well and talking about how yep. politics was politics was replacing god essentially and and china looks like a very a very real incarnation of that of that of that realization of what he was writing about in the mid 20th century so it's it's very interesting to to look at china in that respect and um, i've got to ask- well it's, it's worth it's worth noting though actually that you know this is a practice that is specifically i think directed at Christianity in particular, it's worth noting that China's um, long-standing religions, uh, I mean, Buddhism is an important religion too, but it's yeah. imported in thousand years ago, hasn't for the most part been cracked down on quite the same way, although there are aspects of more millenarian Buddhist religion that have mm-hmm. specifically been cracked down on too. So we just have to be aware about conflating religious yeah, belief yeah. and Christian belief. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I suppose it, it goes back to what you're saying about something being above or, or, or taking precedence over over the party, the party being being supreme. I suppose if it if it's a Chinese religion, then the, the, the party's probably a bit more comfortable that it's got those people. Yes, it, it, it's also the Buddhism in, in, in the sense in which it's, you know, um, Chinese Buddhism is quite distinctive and has more than one branch, but there isn't, you know, there's no Pope in Chinese no. Buddhism. There's no Mecca, you know, it, it doesn't have quite the same sort of um, adherence to something that very um, prominently relates to the outside world. And to that extent, yes, it's easier to, to control. But of course, one of the exceptions to that is Tibetan Buddhism, where there, of course, is a very strong sense of connection to uh, the Dalai Lama in particular, and yeah. that the Chinese government has got extremely hardcore about and clamped down in a big way. So even Buddhism isn't necessarily exempt uh, from uh, those strictures either. Yeah, yeah. And then speaking, again, going back to values, that seems to be very much about control and about power. Is that correct? It is, but it's also about what you might call a sort of ultra defensiveness. Remember the history that I was talking about at the beginning of uh, the, the, the conversation? China's leaders come from a generation that still has sort of muscle memory or kind of intellectual memory, social memory, not direct themselves, but from parents, grandparents, and you know, the history that's been handed down of China always being under attack, you know, British opium traders, Japanese, you know, uh, soldiers, um, Russian. Uh, uh, invaders, well, whatever it might, it might it might be, and the feeling that that could happen again, and you know, if you let your guard down, it could happen tomorrow morning. I, mean, mm. I don't think it would, but you know, that's mm. that's not the point. Um, has created a mindset in which defending China first and foremost uh, from outside threats has become an absolutely driving value, if you want to put it that way. Think yeah. about the current era of COVID. I mean, China has closed its borders to COVID for a variety of reasons. One is that it wants to maintain a political narrative that China is better protected than anywhere else in the world. But there is something quite symbolic about the fact that the the go-to mechanism has been 
to make sure that people can't come in and out without tremendous amount of screening. China's not the only country that's done this. Australia did it. New Zealand's done it. So it's not unique, but it's very different from the tactics used in um, most Western countries, where there has been a sort of certain acknowledgement that actually a complete closing of the borders for a long period probably isn't 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 vi- isn't viable. In the case of China, there is this long-standing feeling. Well, you know, we've been under siege many occasions before, not always through our own doing, and so in this particular case there's a sort of aversion to actually protection and defense as the you know, core value that drives the way that the, the, the government thinks about what it wants to do. Yes, yes, that, that value, safety is a value. Safety has been the highest value. I think that's... If you, want to, if you want to see one word above any other that seems to be sprayed across every single piece of Chinese governmental policy today, it's the word you've just said. And it's interesting because in Chinese, the word anqian, can be translated as safety. So safety first, as we say in English, but it also means security. That can mean security both in the sense of feeding a sense of security because you're warm and protected and you know, mm. the, uh, you've know got enough to eat, and also security in the sense of evil spies coming in to try and you know undermine the country or national security. It's all the same word and the same meaning. Safety and security, which of course are related in English, are literally the same word in Chinese. And the use of that kind of read across of anxian, again, if we're talking about some of the values that are shaping China of the 2020s, that word anxian, safety slash security, is a really good place to start. Yeah. So so following on from that then, Ryan, how do they see you as a historian? Because they're very protective over their history, of course. And and you're somebody who is an academic. You're in the, the, the free world, so to speak. You're in a liberal democracy. You're very, very prominent in your role at, at Oxford as well. It's a, an institution that has eyeballs on it worldwide across the globe. So, so how, does, how does all this and the, the value of safety and security to the Chinese government and the importance of its version of history or the telling of its history, how, do, how does that affect you in the way that you do your work? Well, you're absolutely right that history is, as a sort of set of ideas of core importance to the China of today and to the Chinese Communist Party. I'm glad to say that for the most part, individual historians in the West are probably not quite, you've said some very generous things about me, but uh, I think compared to politicians, diplomats, and you know people who actually go out and make money, which historians don't do, we probably have a slightly lesser role. I certainly have good um, interaction in normal non-COVID times and extremely productive relations with Chinese academic institutions and friends at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences and major universities are people I work with. I would say that the topics that I've tended to concentrate on, not through any particular planning on my part, but just because I found them interesting, have tended to be ones where there is common ground for China to talk about. We mentioned World War II before, and I've spent, you know, certainly much of the last 20 years or so looking at aspects of China's World War II experience in my historical studies. And I found that actually, as I say, not through any planning on my part, but that's gone down well with colleagues in China and actually readers in China, simply because very few Westerners actually look at that particular topic. So as I've said, you know, A, I would never choose a topic because it might be more favorable in China. And B, to be honest, many aspects of what I write are probably quite problematic. You know, I talk about the way in which uh, the Chinese Communist Party uses, you know, physical violence to indoctrinate um, its members in the 1940s in wartime China, for instance. And that's something that isn't much talked about in the mainland no. today. But overall, so far, I've had a sense that actually those of us who the Chinese Academy broadly defined see doing history in a serious way in the Western world will get a serious conversation, even if they know, and we know that on some things, 
particularly you know, issues to do with um, uh, uh, the, the kind of tactics of the Chinese Communist Party, we're not necessarily going to agree. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. If you've got time for it, Rana, because I know we're sure, sure. about yeah, out no, yeah, good stuff. How, how does the Chinese state see the individual then? It's a really interesting question. I would say that the term individual in Chinese has a checkered history in the 20th century. So, Gurundri, individualism, which we would think of probably in the West as a neutral term, maybe even quite a, you know, he's a very individual sort of person, individualistic, it can have a sort of aura of selfishness about it, it doesn't have to. In China, it is generally used in a more negative sense. Individualism, Gurundri, um, was seen quite often as a sort of sense that you were still prone to your own personal idiosyncrasies and selfishness and needed to find ways to sort of, you know, collectivize uh, uh, in, in, in terms of, um, uh, of, of your, um, your aims. That said, one of the things that you can see in the last, say, 40 years or so, ever since the death of Mao in contemporary China, is that individual freedoms in China have gone in two separate directions. And quite often we look at, we look at one of them too much, but not the other. And I think they have to be looked together in tandem. In terms of the freedoms which we in the liberal world consider very important, because they are very important, political freedoms and civil liberties in particular, the freedom to criticize the government, the freedom to be able to publish what you want in the press and so forth, um, China is very constrained and is becoming harsher, as I've said, it's definitely more harsh than it was a few years ago. In terms of other sorts of individual liberties, including certain types of economic freedoms, uh, and you know, even things like the freedom, something like the freedom to wear what you want. The Cultural Revolution, if you didn't wear the kind of boiler suit uniform, then you would be, you know, condemned as a foreign agent, essentially. And that's not true um, in the China today, nor has it been for the last few years. There is a bit of a crackdown on what you might call conspicuous consumption, you know, wearing you know, very expensive designer watches or driving very expensive uh, automobiles uh, is, is pretty frowned on at the, at the moment. But, you know, if you walk down the street wearing, uh, you know, kind of casual clothes or whatever, that's just what people people do. So you could argue that in terms of certain types of individual freedom, which are more tied to the economic sphere, or the freedom to become an entrepreneur, the freedom to be able to kind of, you know, it's much easier, I think, to start a small business in China than in India, um, for instance, even though even though things are cracking down in India too. For the moment, individual freedom to speak in India is more um, uh, extensive than it is in, in, in China, and I hope it, I hope it remains so. So thinking about those two types of individual freedom, I think helps us to understand where China is definitely more repressive than the liberal world, and where actually it has opened up opportunities that individuals really do value. Yeah, yeah, I think it's interesting, because I think about Jack Ma as well, and Mm-hmm. how how his world was kind of turned upside down by by the state and there have been various suggestions that maybe the state felt that he got a bit too big for his boots and this idea that the, the state's on top but it doesn't want anybody to to get a get ahead of it or to, to be seen as as superseding it in any way shape or that's right and the, the party perhaps even more than the states um, but i i would just caution a bit um, about using Jack Ma as an example, not because you know, what happened to him wasn't very, very prominent, but partly because celebrities in any society are so untypical that actually sure, yeah. they don't necessarily tell you that much about the wider society. If you think about the kind of wider body of whom there are millions in China of what you might call small and medium entrepreneurs, they'll never be 
remotely as rich or remotely yeah. as famous as Jack Ma, but actually there are an awful lot of them. And those are the kind of people who would argue, I think quite strongly, I've talked to many of them, that the economic opportunities that have been brought up by the marketization of the economy in the last 40 years have been a genuine benefit to them in a way that the collective economy of the Mao era simply didn't permit. Mm. Mm, yeah, very interesting. It's a very good point to, to to look at look at these questions in the context of the the wider mass and and much of that what you've talk, been talking about about the marketization and the opening up of, of China to do business mm. has been part of of what's you know globalization and, and now we're talking here we are talking about things like decoupling a, a potential divorce between broadly speaking the West and China. Final word. Do you, do you think that's going to happen? Uh, sorry, just give me the question again. Um, the decoupling, do you think that there's oh, probably a, a decoupling between China and the West, or, or do you think we're just too, we, we're too strongly linked together now? I don't know anyone, whether it's in the United States or China, who thinks that a genuine decoupling of the two sides is possible. Mm. Um, every single one of the economies of the Asia-Pacific in, uh, um, uh, in, in the region has China as its number one economic partner. But China is also still deeply dependent on supply chains based in the United States for much of its technological capacity. Um, also in other parts of the world, uh, such as South Korea, Taiwan, which produce goods like semiconductors. In other words, the process of separating, even though I think you're right that both Beijing and Washington would like to do it, it's just so complex that mm. a true decoupling isn't uh, isn't possible. Both sides are going to be very wary of each other for a long time to come. And there's no doubt that there is a sort of ideological battle of, of values, if you want to put it that way, yeah. which is definitely emerging between the two sides. But the idea that this could simply be faced off like the Cold War, where there was actually very little economic interaction between the two sides, I think is not a plausible outcome. What the outcome is, maybe good, maybe bad, we don't know, but I think it will not replay the historical uh, you know, patterns of the past, it will be something new that is defined by the fact that there is economic interaction, there are very new types of technology that both sides are using, and that the, the competition essentially for alliances and for partnerships, both on the Chinese side and the American side, is still a sort of relatively fluid game that's in process, and where a lot of actors have an interest in you know, having engagement with, with both. So uh, yeah, I think that decoupling is unlikely, but a shift in the current situation is something that we're going through now and will continue to be a factor for the next you know, 10 years or more. Yeah, it could be a very movable feast, couldn't it? Rana, this, this has been a fascinating conversation. I'm, I'm so grateful to you for coming on the show and, and having this chat and sharing your, your insight and your wisdom on China and in relation to values, because there is so much. And we could, we could go on for a long time talking about this, but for the obvious constraints. In in closing, is there anything that you would recommend to listeners to look up or to read if, if they'd like to learn more about China and China's values? I think there are a lot of very interesting books out there that can tell you a lot about um, where the China of today has come from and where it's going to. Um, I'll mention, um, let me think what's, uh, uh, what's come up recently that uh, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. So let me give you a couple of things. One is, um, I know we've got video on the podcast, but I'll, I'll sort of show you here. A book I mentioned earlier in the conversation, uh, Against Political Equality by uh, Tung Dong Bai, which uh, is um, available uh, through Princeton University Press in English translation. Um, and it's a um, very interesting piece of work that gives you the views of a very, you know, of the moment 
Chinese philosopher, you know, very much steeped in the, in the, in the present day, but someone who knows the Chinese tradition and philosophy and also about Marxism extremely effectively. And I'd suggest that that would be a very useful place to start with a Chinese voice that can tell you more, uh, uh, more about that. Um, I'd also suggest actually a website rather than um, uh, necessarily a book. Uh, it's edited and curated by a Canadian academic, very distinguished and interesting academic called David Ownby. And the website is called Reading the China Dream, Reading the China Dream, just you know, put it into a search yeah. engine, you'll, you'll find it there. And it's a brilliant set of translations of lots of debates by contemporary Chinese political thinkers and philosophers about what they think is going on in China today. And it's a real insight because on the one hand, we all know in the West that there's huge amounts of censorship and repression in China. And that's true. There's no getting around that. What we often ignore is the fact there are still some really important intellectual debates going on about issues of real importance both in terms of international relations and where China's domestic settlement is, is, is going. Um, and so looking at that website, I think, is a really good deep dive into some of those issues, and I'd, I'd highly recommend it. Super. Ranamita, thank you so much for your time on the Real Clear Values podcast. Thanks very much, Tom. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Real Clear Values podcast with Tom English. If you know anyone who is looking for success that's both meaningful and sustainable, for themselves or their organization, then please send them this podcast. And if you yourself are looking to create a life of purpose, meaning and fulfillment for your own version of sustainable success, then I offer a mentoring program that will get you on your way. Just go to 3stewardships.com or message me directly to tom at 3stewardships.com. That's tom at 3stewardships.com. Until next time, I'm Tom English and I wish you all the best in your own pursuit of sustainable success.